I'm convinced that at the heart of every truly remarkable relationship is a quality of connection between two people that goes by the familiar word friendship. Friendship. The very best relationships between husbands and wives, for example, or the most profound connections between adult kids and their parents or between siblings, workmates, members of a team, always have this bond in common, don't they? Friendship is always there at the center of it. Individuals who find this kind of friendship in life are equipped in a way that people who lack the relationship simply are not. not. And it's a terribly sad thing when somebody doesn't have that kind of relationship. Maybe many acquaintances, all kinds of associations, but lacks this fundamental friendship. This is, of course, what King Solomon is observing when he writes these words from Ecclesiastes 4. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. And Solomon is discoursing on those somewhat vain and unproductive dimensions of human life in this text. He says, I saw something meaningless under the sun once again. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. And yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. In other words, I saw this person whose life was full in many respects. His life was consumed with all kinds of work and all kinds of wealth. And yet neither brought him contentment. He may have had a lot of people around him. He may have had all kinds of marvelous things around him. But he had nobody who really shared his life. He was active. He was affluent. But he was all alone. And the third condition trumped the first two. He lived his life without a friend. Friendship is the key to overcoming loneliness. And for many people in our world today, the company of the crowd is not sufficient to meet the needs of the soul. They hunger for community. They hunger to be known. They long to love and be loved. They long to give a gift that matters, to grow in grace, to sow a seed that will continue. But they cannot do it until they find friends, until they find a community in which this life is nurtured and experienced. That's why they come to churches. That's why every single week people wander into churches, hoping that maybe here, maybe here, I will find friends. That's why we always must be on the lookout for new faces, for People that we've not yet known, because it may be that person coming with that hunger that we're meeting that day. Friendship is the key to overcoming loneliness when we're by ourselves. But you know, it's also the secret to overcoming the challenge of living with one another. Friendship is the key to overcoming the challenges that come when we live together. When the fabric of friendship is strong in a relationship, it can bear the winds and the worries that sooner or later beset any relationship. When the fabric of friendship is strong, it can handle the pressures of life. When the fabric of friendship gets weak and worn, however, 
that it's only a matter of time before the inevitable pressures of life and of our own personal imperfections bring the kite of our connections down. If friendship goes in our relationships, even if we're, we're continuing to keep house or continuing to work together or continuing to make other arrangements, if the fabric of friendship has grown worn and tattered, then we lose the capacity to maintain our loft as people. And that is why I think if we're looking to renew a faltering relationship, if we're hoping to prevent that faltering in the first place, then it pays to make sure that we are investing in what it takes to maintain or preserve friendship. And that's why this morning I want to think with you as the closing element of our series of reflections on relationships on four particular practices which the Bible teaches help friendships grow. The first of those investments is suggested by the question that Solomon poses in the opening words of Ecclesiastes 4 and verse 8. For whom am I toiling, he asks, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Sometimes this is what life feels like to us, doesn't it? Sometimes it feels like each day is a parade of meaningless moments. Each day is an incessant parade of misery and toil. And the people closest to us sometimes don't seem to be adding much to the experience. I think back to a time like this in my own marriage and family when the fabric of love between Amy and me had worn particularly thin. And I've gotten permission to tell you the story. I thought it was wise to ask permission. We were both in school. We were both working jobs. We were both parenting young children. We were both handling financial pressures and difficulties. And we were wearing out. And it was very difficult to maintain a sense of connection between us as we passed each other in life. It became very easy to start looking at each other and seeing in the other the enemy. One more pressure. One more person that wasn't helping us make this whole thing work. In the midst of this particular season of our life, a pair of dear friends of ours, a more seasoned couple in marriage perhaps sensing some of what was going on, came to us and said, listen, why don't you take our vacation home for several days? Why don't you just go away, enjoy some time, just the two of you? And we at first resisted the invitation. We weren't that sure we wanted to spend that much time cooped up just with that other person. We had so many things that needed to be done back at home. And so that was our excuse. No, no, we can't get away. We've got the kids. We've got the dog. And they said, no, we'll come take care of the kids and the dog. And it was awkward to keep saying no to that kind of kindness. So we went. And it was tense. It was tense. We had not had face time like this with one another in a very long time. And we had issues between us that needed reconciliation. And we did not know how to talk about them constructively. And we were frankly just so weary, we didn't want to go there. And so for the first days, 
we didn't. She napped over here and I napped over there. And she read her book there and I read my book over here. And then as time went on, we went out and we went walking on the beach and we didn't talk much. We just soaked up the sun, listened to the waves. And then we decided to go swimming and we went swimming. And then we went out for dinner and then we went home bed early. And then when this went on, a few more days. And then the most amazing thing began to happen. We hadn't discussed anything yet. We had just lived this life together. And we suddenly started looking at each other with these new eyes. And this is what it felt like inside of me, and I think Amy experienced much the same. This is what was going on inside of me. Oh, I remember you. We used to be very good friends. I mean, we used to have fun like this a lot together. And it was great. I'd like to know you again. And we began to talk. I've seen this kind of thing happen in my workplace, too. Maybe you've seen this kind of thing in yours. We're all slogging hard. It's a competitive world. There's all kinds of demands. And it's very easy to start feeling very underappreciated. Like, this department's competing against that department. Tensions were high. We were on edge with each other. It came time for the annual staff retreat. And everybody groans. Oh, do I have to go away with these people? I mean, there's so much stuff to be done back at home. But we go. And then we decide to go bowling together. And we find out that that one of our guys can throw a bowling ball three inches above the wood, three quarters down the alley. It's amazing. Wow. (laughs) And we go on this car rally scavenger hunt. And we start to laugh. And we start to kick. And we just start to remember why it is every one of us signed on with this particular crew. Have you had an experience like that lately? Have you experienced that kind of enjoyment in recent days? Why are you depriving yourself of enjoyment? Asks the Bible. Why? Don't you realize that no relationship ever becomes remarkable or stays that way without the practice of play? Without the consistent rhythm of play in it? How can you restore that particular part of the kite of connection in your life, in your relationship with those closest to you? Is it time for you to plan a night away together, a weekend away, to set a whole real vacation week aside? Is it time to do that? Perhaps you need to take a ballroom dancing class together. Maybe it's time to sign up for sailing lessons or to to commit yourself to taking on some other interest or hobby that both of you are incompetent at. 
Here's a tip, husbands. Don't pick an activity you're an expert at and your wife hates. Find something you're both incompetent learners and try it together. Maybe you ought to rent a comedy video or go out and watch me play golf so you can laugh together. Go on a walk this afternoon. Bring an umbrella if you do. Find some time to stroll on a beach someplace. Plan a dinner party with people that you love or would like to really get to know. Go to a funeral. We sponsor a lot of them here. Seriously, go to a funeral. Sit there alongside of that important person in your life and remember how good it is to be alive. What a privilege it is. Remember to value the time. Remember how precious even imperfect people are. Don't find out too late. Remember, you may never be healthier than you are now. Or stop by a car dealership or maybe several of them this week and take a convertible out for a test drive. (laughs) You don't have to buy it. Just get out there together. Feel the wind in your hair or where the hair used to be. Just get out there. Volunteer yourself in one of our children's ministries or one of the youth ministry gatherings and go to school on these young people. Remember what it feels like, what it looks like to be somebody who actually plays with their friends and enjoys them. Because the practice of play is the first crucial ingredient to friendship. And we forget it as we grow up. Then consider the second piece of counsel that Solomon offers to us in verse 10 of this passage. If one falls down, he writes, his friend can help him up. Friends help each other up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Neil Jacobson is a clinical psychologist who is a faculty member at the University of Washington. And Jacobson found in his research that most relationships suffer critical injury not so much from the direct pressures and dynamics within the bond or the connection, but rather from the pressures that come upon the relationship from the outside. The world beats people up, Jacobson notes. It wears them down. Financial Demands weigh in upon it, upon them. We move too quickly. We feel the pressure of that. The callousness and criticism of the people around drive us lower and lower and lower till we have not enough left to give to the important relationships of our lives. We're just too exhausted. We think that maybe it's because this person is so lousy. No, it's not really that. It's because you're so depleted. You could put up with, you could manage life with an imperfect person if you were not so depleted. And this is why one of the most important practices beyond play that some of us need to learn is the practice of simply asking each other on a regular basis this simple question. How was your day? How is your day going? How is your life going? And then listening to the answer. 
and not giving advice, not trying to solve the problems, simply share the burdens. How was your day? Let this weary person that you're in company with know that if this world has beaten them down, and it almost always will have, if this world has begun to beat them down or they maybe have fallen down, and we do that, all of us, we make mistakes, we fail, we're disappointed, we're discouraged with ourselves, let them know that even if that is the case, they have at least one friend in this world who stands with them and will help to pick them up. I have found time and time again, I'm in a counseling situation or a conversation with people, they come in, they pour out the massive, complicated problems, and I'm thinking to myself as I'm going, mm, oh, that must have been so hard. Oh, wow. I'm thinking behind, I'm thinking, gosh, what should I say to them? I don't know how to solve their problems, and I don't. And the end of the conversation comes and I'm feeling kind of badly that all I've done is sort of sit there with them and listen to them and empathize with them and nothing more practical than that. And they get up and they throw their arms around me and hug me or shake my hand and go, you were so helpful to me today. Because they just needed a friend to pick them up. Jacobson found in his research that couples who routinely help lift each other's spirits even a little bit every day against the pressing weight of this world are dramatically more successful in preserving the relationship. It's true in workplaces as well. It's true in parent-child relationships as well. Are you practicing this particular discipline of friendship? Are you taking seriously enough that empathy stuff we talked about earlier in the series? This is the way of Jesus, said the Apostle Paul. This is the way of Jesus. Bear one another's burdens, he said, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Just get your shoulder in underneath some of the burdens these important people are carrying. Or think about getting even better at the third practice of friendship. Solomon is getting at this one, I think, when he writes, Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Now, I'm going to save a fuller exposition of that text for the sex series we'll do next year. But think about this for a minute. I've shared with some of you that before I marry a couple... I always ask them, what is it that you love about each other? Tell me, what is it that you particularly admire and are fond of about your partner? And they have no trouble telling me. They sit on my couch that first session and they just come out with all of these wonderful things. I furiously scribble down notes. The wedding day comes. I feed it back to them on their wedding day. And then at the end of the service, I hand them the little book in which all of it is written down and I pass it to them and I, say, I did this just yesterday right there. I say, I say to them, take this with you and when times get tough, read it again. Read again what you felt about each other when you began this journey. Read it again when the times get tough. And you know what? They always get tough. They always get tough sooner or later. 
And I don't know how many pull it out at that time. But I wish they would because degree by degree, our own sin, the sin of the people we're in relationship with, the pressures of life pull us apart. And it happens slowly and over time until we're so far apart. And there comes a day for many of us when when we're so estranged, we're so far apart, we are cold, our hearts are cold, our experience of life is so terribly cold. And it's then, especially then, when we're so far apart that we need to lie down together and warm each other. And it is so hard and so counterintuitive to get there. Legendary marital therapist John Gottman has found a way of helping couples when they get in trouble. Gottman writes, fondness and admiration are two of the most crucial elements in a rewarding and long-lasting romance. He writes, although happily married couples may feel driven to distraction at times by their partner's personality flaws, they still feel that the person they are married to is worthy of honor and respect. They still feel some measure of fondness and admiration for that other person. And that is why Gottman's number one strategy when he works with couples that are struggling is not to go after their problems. It is not to go back into past history and dredge up all the places they failed and injured each other. It's not to go back to childhood and look at those issues. It's not to look at all the performance failures in the present moment. That is not his strategy. His number one strategy is to help the couple lie down together again, figuratively and literally. It is to help the couple get close enough together that they can actually go through some exercises that start to heat up the fondness and admiration that is still there buried beneath the ice of their hearts. And these are some of his exercises. Would you like to know what they are? Here's just a few of them. Describe one character trait or one physical trait about the other that you find sort of endearing or lovable. Think of a good time in your relationship. There were good times. And talk about what was so good about it. What was so good about that time? Name one thing about the other that makes you proud. Describe one strong value, belief, or interest you have in common with one another and why that is so important to you. Describe a time when you felt very supported by the other person, when they helped you in a time of anxiety or fear or fatigue. Describe one moment when they helped and supported you. Talk about a common goal you once had together or could still forge together. Tell the story of your meeting and why you decided to bind your lives to one another in the first place. 
Have you ever been out to dinner with another couple and you know that there's a lot of tension between them and it's kind of a little awkward and then you ask the question, how did you meet? How did you get married? And they go into that story and things begin to melt and suddenly there's this whole new source of life and, and love that exists for just a fleeting moment until they walk away from that moment and it goes back to normal. Ask people. Ask one another again. Why did you marry me in the first place? What was it about me? Let me tell you what it was about you that I was drawn to. Discuss a vacation or playtime you remember and what was so special about that. Describe one thing the other person does that makes your life easier, even now. One clear benefit of your relationship. Talk about one thing that you planned or that you produced together that turned out successfully. Name one difference between the two of you that you've managed to navigate to adapt to fairly well. Describe a tough time, a difficult circumstance that you managed to weather together. Or or think of another love or work or social or family relationship that you have seen that is in worse shape than yours and give thanks together. It ain't that bad. Gottman was not the first person to counsel this kind of thing. The Apostle Paul, many years before, saw the importance of this when he wrote, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything, if you can find anything that is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about those things. And the God of peace will be with you. If you want a relationship that is filled with a greater sense of peace than a sense of problems, think on these things and see if it doesn't warm up that old fondness and affection. Finally, Work at the fourth practice of friendship Solomon commands. It is simply this. Defend the people closest to you. Defend them. Evil's most brilliant strategy is to get us alone. To get us isolated. Go back and read the Garden of Eden story again. You'll see this. Evil's most brilliant strategy is to get us cut off, even from the people we've once been closest to, to make us start to be an enemy toward them, to be another one of the people attacking them. Solomon writes, Though one may be overpowered, and often one is, Two can defend themselves. Now, I want to qualify what I'm about to say because I think we live in an age where sometimes we defend each other to a fault in one particular area that I'm aware of. Parents these days defend their kids against teachers to a fault. When what they ought to be doing is pulling that kid over whacking up a little sense upside the head and helping them confront their faults so their character changes 
and they don't continue to have those difficulties. But having given that caveat, we will never have truly remarkable relationships with our kids. We will never truly have remarkable relationships with our spouses. We will never truly have the kind of relationships we want with our coworkers and neighbors and many others unless they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that at the core, at a level that is not normal, that is truly remarkable, we have their back. We have their back. We will not be one of those people who lets our ambivalence about their goodness and badness, their attractive and unattractive elements, stop us from defending them. We will not be one of those people whose voice is always on the tack with them. They need to have memories. Our family and loved ones need to have all kinds of memories of time when we stood up for them, when others were against them. When it was us and them against the world. They need to have these memories of times when you believe the best of them when others were believing the worst of them. They need to know that you know and feel that God has appointed you to be part of their strong defense against all that tries to tear them down in life. Do the people in your life know they can count on you to have their back? Let me close by saying that I know it is not easy to do any of this. It's very difficult to do the kinds of things we've been talking about throughout this series. It is certainly not easy to prioritize play in a world devoted to toil. It's not easy to lift others up when you yourself feel worn down. It's not easy to warm up affection when the connection has gone cold. It is not easy to defend people against attack when you are aware of their imperfections. But as hard as it is, these kinds of behaviors are what are required to renew the fabric of friendship. And friendship is the core of relationship. And God's word promises that people who invest in building friendship will have a good return for their work. The investment will produce results. So as far away as the good in some of your connections have gone, you can see it return, the good returns for those who make these kinds of investments. You can leave behind the world of regular relationships that are constantly being patterned as normative and to which people are resigning them in all kinds of places. You can leave that world of relationships behind and you can enter into the kingdom of God's remarkable kinds of relationships. I hope this series has helped us, many of us, to move even a little bit further in this direction but if you, if you take nothing else from what I've said to you over this time, this business of relationships and seeking to live into the kind that God has in mind, this isn't just one department of our life. This is life. This is the call of life, the call of God. This is the call of Jesus himself. This is our destiny. To love other people as he has loved us. May he fill you 
with the wind of his spirit to lift the kite of all of your connections higher than you dreamed possible. To which God's disciples said, Amen.